Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we're about to begin the triennial division of the portion Lech Lecha. So many of us know this as the call to Avram and Sarai to leave where they are and to go forth. They are supposed to go towards, right, Canaan, to the promise, towards the promised land. Um, they, all of our matriarchs and patriarchs are born in Mesopotamia. They hang out in Mesopotamia. So Mesopotamian culture, Mesopotamian law, Mesopotamian society would have been the context that our matriarchs and patriarchs originate in. A few years ago, we studied the story that we're going to study this morning, and we studied it um, from the perspective of the work of Savina Tuval. And if you'll recall, Savina um, wrote, uh, Tuval wrote a book called Sarah the Priestess, um, and locates Sarah and the matriarchs in the Mesopotamian culture, in which they would have been leaders, and that meant they would have been religious leaders, um, and that means they would have been priestesses. So um, I, the, the reason I want to be clear about that is because once we studied Tubal, it's hard for me to go back and just look at the patriarchal Israelite texts about these women. It's very hard. Um, I was telling them earlier, just in my own life, I had a hard night last night, and now I don't know if that influenced it, but I'm really not happy with Avram this year. Like, we're going to read the text, and I am, y'all know sometimes I have a problem with Moshe, but like I'm really not happy with Avram. And um, and it's it's the women and the perceived conflict between the women that gets focused on all the time when we teach and talk about this story. I tried to reconstruct that for us, placing Sarai in the matriarchal religious culture of Mesopotamia, which I'll remind us of as we go through the story. But this year, I am super mad at Avram. So just know that 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 might come out this morning. All right. So, um, Rachel Feldman, would you be so kind as to share the text for the morning? Oh, look at her. She's an expert. Look at that. All right. Notice the spelling already of Sarai, Sin, Resh, Yud. So this is Visarai and Sarai, Sin, Resh, Yud. This is not Sarah. Sin, Resh, Hey is Sarah. Her name is changed, as is the name of her husband, Avram. We'll change from that to Avraham. Both get the hay, and the hay is a part of yud hey vav hey. Right, so this is a Yahwist addition to their names. Um, so their names will be changed when they have a certain religious experience to being a Yahwist uh, name. So Sarai means princess, uh, and so again, someone of great stature. Um, this is Sarai. We have just remnants of these women's stories. All we have are remnants. We can imagine that once upon a time, these were full-blown matriarchal narratives in the Mesopotamian world about heroines, you know, their founding heroines in a matriarchal culture. 
So the fact that they are, um, Barry saying Kabbalah has stuff that it writes about having a, a name that ends in an open syllable rather than Sarai, which is closed. Sara being open. Okay. So an opening up possibly. Okay. So, so what we have are remnants. We can read back into the stories and we've done that by looking at Mesopotamian literature, Mesopotamian law where some of the stuff we're going to discuss this morning, we find that in Mesopotamian law. So we, we are reading back in, because I can't do it anymore without that, because I think it's super important. Um, and like I said, I'm mad at Avram today. All right, so let's look at 16.1. So remember what happened just before this. Just before, poor Rachel failed minutes. Like, is she going to ever get to the text? Um, so what happened right before this is that we're, we're told over and over and over that Avram's going to have, like, he's going to be the father of a nation that is as many as the sky, stars in the sky, the grains of sand on the beach, and ten years go by, and Sarai is barren. So we're assuming she's trying hard to get pregnant, and she's not conceiving. So, again, if we look at Mesopotamian tradition, priestesses, controlled their fertility on purpose. They were not people with seven children. They often did not have children because they did not have uh, intercourse outside of the sacred intercourse with the king. Um, and they would um, they were servants, right, to the goddess. And so they, they didn't have children. That wasn't their role. So it's possible this is a remnant of Sarai having been a priestess and not having children. But the patriarchal narrative understands her as barren, right? So you can already see if we look at the Mesopotamian tradition and then we look at what does the Israelite Yahwist author, what's that agenda? She's barren. God has closed her womb rather than her having agency and controlling her fertility. So already a shift. As soon as our story starts, she's been barren for 10 years. Um, now, if we take it to women who really do want to be pregnant and are barren, then you can imagine the agony that we're talking about for Sarai. As we begin, she's barren 10 years. They've been promised this abundant offspring, and that's where our story opens. Do we, do we know what happened to her from being a priestess to getting to the position where she was? Uh, what we're talking about not starting the story. Yeah, so Linda's asking about the transition from, you know, the powerful priestess and control of her fertility to what we have now. Mm -hmm. um, I believe it's the agenda of patriarchy. Okay. That she's rendered wife. She has a status of first wife. So that's high status in the, in the Israelite patriarchal world of the Bible. That was a high status, but that's kind of as high as you got is first wife. First wife with sons was your highest status. So she's not there, but that's how, that's the fall from a matriarchal Mesopotamian cultural position to what we have. So again, I'm not only not happy with Avram, I'm not terribly thrilled with the patriarchal author either this year. All right, so let's look at 16.1. So the Sarai Eshet Avram Lo Yaldalo. So Sarai has not given birth <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear Emma Lynn is not thrilled either with the patriarchy. So, um, so Sarai uh, has not born for Avram, 
right? So now it switches also from the Mesopotamian priestess looking for her heir to she's not born Avram an heir, right? Now women are the pass-through for males to own the offspring. That was not how it would have been, right, in, in the Mesopotamian tradition, um, at least for these women. So she had not born something to, Robin's not happy with it either. I'm, this is so great. I needed you all. This is like a support group for me today. Um, so she has Shifcha Mitzrit. She has a maidservant, Mitzrit, Egyptian, Ushma Hagar, and her name was Hagar. So we've talked about this a lot when we've studied this text, but I know we have new people with us. Um, Hagar, you know, that we can't ignore the fact that that contains the word ger, which is stranger, a foreigner. In the Parsha, we meet Hagar. You could read Hagar, because if there's no vowels, it's Hagar, Hagar. It's the same consonants, the same letters. So we meet Hagar, the foreigner, the stranger, the root for immigrant, as Barry's pointing out, in the Parsha that, that we talk about our matriarch and patriarch becoming foreigners, leaving the land of their birth and, and migrating makes them immigrants. So we're meeting Hagar, but it can't help but remind us that now Avram and Sarai, in order to become who they're going to become, have to become um She's Akara, she's described as barren, can also mean uprooted, rootless. So she, they have now become rootless, and the other meaning of Akara, barren, and we meet Hagar. Now she's Egyptian. Why does, why does, or how does Sarai get an Egyptian slave? Anybody remember where Sarai hung out for a little while and why? Yeah, with Pharaoh. With Pharaoh who saw how beautiful Sarai was and took her into his palace. Then he figures out that she's someone else's wife and and calls Avram to task for calling Sarai his sister. And, but she's been in the palace. <laughs> so we can assume she's been added to the harem. And then she... Um, and then she is sent away with Avram because Pharaoh's angry that he has been deceived. And they are given lots of stuff. It is possible that Hagar is a slave from that settlement on Avram and Sarai from uh, her time being taken by Pharaoh. If that's true, already imagine what does that mean, right? Already she's got Hagar as her maidservant that it can't help but remind her of her time with Pharaoh. Now, if you are a Mesopotamian priestess and you have a liaison with one of the most powerful kings in the world, good for you, right? She's an ambassador. She's an emissary, right? He might have even come to her to, to have um, carnal relations with the embodiment of the goddess. That is her role as priestess. So that is probably the originating story. But in the patriarchal imagination, of course, she is taken. She's not consulted, she's taken. So my question then was, how did she escape? That's really where I was wondering. How did she escape the palace of Mesopotamia? Because Pharaoh discovers Pharaoh. she's married yeah, to someone else and summons Avram to say, why did you deceive me? And then says, get out. 
Right, that's why I asked the question before. We hadn't gotten to why yet. So, um, okay, so Hagar could be an irritant just by her very presence, right? But why, I'm sorry, why, why, um, why did Pharaoh give them a whole bunch of stuff, including Hagar, if he was pissed? Well, the, one of the things that happens is that they get hemorrhoids and, like, really terrible, probably venereal stuff, because he connects the illness in the palace to her being married. So we're not given the whole story, but but he connects that. So he doesn't want to piss off any further whatever powers are making the people in the palace ill because of Sarai. Actually, because of Avram lying. Right. So he's like, takes, here's a bunch of stuff. And get out. Happy travels. Bye-bye. Live a good, full, happy life far away from Egypt. Okay. All right. So... So we've got Hagar. Now, you've seen The Handmaid's Tale enough to know, (laughs) right, that under this law and under Mesopotamian law, even if you're not a priestess, if you do not have an heir of your body, you can take a slave and, and have an heir through the slave. The slave belongs to you as the mistress. Therefore, any children she bears belongs to the mistress. So, um, so that's where the Handmaid's Tale comes from. Um, and so the situation is that Sarai does not have an heir, but we're told she does have a maidservant. People listening to the story in the ancient Near East are like, well, why doesn't she just use the maidservant then? And that's where we're going. And Sarai said to Avram, he may not, right? Yo, look, God has, has stopped me from bearing. Bona el shivchati, come then into my maidservant. Ulai ibanem mimena, maybe I will be built up through her or from her. Vayishma Avram lekol Sarai, and Avram listened to the voice of Sarai. He heeded in this sense. He he obeyed the voice of Sarai. And so, Rachel, you can go down. Great. Vatikach Sarai et Avram et Hagar Hamitri. Great. So, so Sarai, Avram's wife, took her maid Hagar the Egyptian. After Abraham had dwelt in, uh, Avram had dealt in the land of Canaan ten years. We're getting reminded again, ten years that they've not that they've been trying and haven't had a kid, and gave her to her husband Avram. What's interesting is the English says concubine, but look at the Hebrew. He, she takes Hagar to Avram, Le'isha, like a boy. which could be translated as wife. So I want you to hold that possibility that, that possibly, let's, let's remember that once Sarai would have had a lot of agency, maybe there's enough agency still here that she decides, all right, she can marry Avram. I will be first wife still, and I will be built up because now there will be a son. Okay. So, and probably Barry, it's not an accident that that's the case, right? Halacha allows a man to divorce his wife not sooner than ten years of trying, and her not being able to have a child. I can't think it's an accident, right? Often halacha looks to these texts to get an idea of what's reasonable. So, so, uh, so she goes, so Hagar goes to Avram either as concubine or as wife, however we want to translate that. 
Hagar Vatahar. So he comes into Hagar Vitahar. She conceives Vatere Kiharta. So she conceives. And the next word is not vateled. We often get vitahar vateled. She conceived and then she bore. We're getting instead, she conceived vatere and she sees. She conceives and she sees that she's pregnant. Vatekal gvirtabe eneha. And, and the stature of her, the, uh, it was hard to, to translate, but, Sarah becomes kal, lighter, in Hagar's eyes. She sees that she's pregnant, and her mistress becomes lighter, the eneha, less than in her eyes. So something's happening here where Hagar understands something vis-a-vis her status as related to Sarai, that something's changed for her. We don't know what that means exactly, but she, but Sarah becomes less in her eyes. And Sarai goes to Avram and says, the wrong that's being done to me, Hamasi, Hamas. Sarai describes what's happening with Hagar as Hamas. Remember what happened with Hamas? What did Hamas cause? Last time we saw that. God sees it. Ha, thank you, the Mabul. God sees that the world is filled with Hamas and destroys the world. Hamasi, my Hamas is your fault. So for Sarai, it is a disaster. Whatever's happening is a disaster. Did she and Hagar have an arrangement, have an agreement, and now something has changed about that agreement? Did Sarai have an understanding of how Avram would be in this situation? And now that's changed? She goes to Avram and says, this is on you. The hell I'm living in is on you. She sees that she's, you know, I gave you my maidservant. And now that she sees she's pregnant, I am lighter, I am less than in her eyes. Let God decide, right? Yishput, yishput yudhe vavhe, may yudhe vavhe judge beni uvenecha, between me and you. I was at this point last night. <laughs> with my 18-year-old. Let God judge between me and you. <laughs> right? Um, possibly, again, if we, if we take seriously the remnants of Mesopotamian whatever, this would have been terrifying to Avram. Right? She's invoking the deity and saying, um, what, well, Barry, that's what we just asked, right? We're, we're not sure. We're not sure why Avram's to blame. We can either assume something shifted with Avram that has made Sarai angry, or she's angry that, oh, okay, and Melinda, sure. Or um, it's possible that, um, that Avram didn't step in and do enough. That, right, that she's angry that Avram didn't defend her with Hagar. Maybe he's coddling Hagar because she's pregnant with his son. Whatever it is, something has changed and she's furious at Avram and she invokes the deity. And notice she invokes Yudhe She's coming to Avram with weapons from his arsenal, right? She would have been raised with a different god. 
with gods, plural, right? Even if we take the patriarchal narrative, she would have been raised with other deities. He's the one that's hanging out with Yudhe Vave and listening to go, blah, blah, blah. And then we know what Yudhe Vave is going to say to him that he agrees to next. And so Sarai invokes his God. Let your God, Yudhe Vave, judge between me and you. It's that bad. All right. So basically, Sarah feels diminished by her God. Yes, Sarah feels diminished by Hagar. I like the fact that she's initially taking her wrath with power rather than taking it on the immigrant. So originally, right, so the original anger is at Avram, not Hagar. So Barry likes that, that she's coming for Avram, right, and not for the slave who we can imagine has less power than the patriarch. Um, and Avram is the patriarch. Make no mistake. He is the patriarch of the family. He has absolute right of life and death over everybody. Um, she's angry at him for, for becoming less in, in Hagar's eyes, but that can't just be Hagar's opinion of her. She's talking about Hamas. Something's happening that has Sarah in agony here, right? It's not just, she doesn't respect me like she used to. Like that, it's not that. Something's happening that's making Sarai's life a living hell. What does Hamas mean? Violence. Chaos. So thus the name of the organization. Yes. Chaos unchained. Evil unchained. You know, just utter confusion out of terrible acts. <clears throat> So she uses this word, and, and, and even if we don't want to layer so much onto it, we have it in Torah. Torah attests that when Hamas is going on, right, the world is destroyed. Okay. Might it have something, <coughs> something to do with the fact that um, Hagar got pregnant immediately, and, and Sarai, after trying all these times, just... Yes, yeah, so one can imagine that, yes, she gives Hagar to Avram and boom, Hagar is pregnant. Hagar can be 17 years old, too, and fertile myrtle, right? Sarai, you know, Sarai is older, but we don't know how old Hagar is. So, but yes, yeah, she is, she conceives right away. Possibly this and is a source. would have created anger, I think, in some, some places, so... Terrible jealousy. Jane jealousy. Like we can imagine all of the things that are going on for Sarai, particularly if Hagar is now acting in a way that makes it clear that this is not a thing they're doing together anymore. All right. So look, wait, where are we? So the text is Vayomer Avram el Sarai. So what does Avram answer? She's just invoked Yudhe Vave to judge between them. And he answers, Hine. Here's your maidservant. She's in your hand. You're lowered in her eyes. She's in your hand. Do with her what is good in your eyes. So he's shifting the agency, right? If she's, you're lowered in her eyes, well, your eyes will now determine what your hand gets to so she's so do with her what's good in your eyes, right? You you take care of it, right? Do whatever you want with her. So then Sarai turns around, right, and and oppresses Hagar. 
So I was reading a commentary about this that said, Vetaaneha, um, so she she oppresses her, she she abuses her, but that some places in Torah this word can mean slavery, to enslave. So if that's the case, that translation actually makes a little more sense to me. That Hagar thinks her status vis-a-vis Sarai has changed, and Sarai enslaves her. That makes way more sense to me as uh, as the meaning, right? Because it's almost like Hagar's like now that I'm the mother of the heir, maybe I'm I'm not a slave anymore. I'm his concubine. I'm his isha. I'm his wife. And she's no longer a slave. That would make this word, I think, a better translation might be, she enslaved Hagar. She goes to Abram and says, this is your fault. This is on you. And the answer is, she's your slave. Do with her what you want. And Sarai turns around and re-enslaves Hagar. Right? Reiterates her status as a shifcha, as a maidservant in the house, not as right a, a co-wife. So I think I think that is a fair interpretation. Are we gonna watch Netflix instead of Torah <laughs> study? That works for me. Um, but all right. So what? What? How does that sentence end? What is the end of that whole business? Vativrach. Um, and she, meaning she, Hagar, fled from the face of Sarai. Hagar flees. Hagar leaves. So what just happened? Status got changed by her pregnancy, at least in Hagar's eyes. She acts on that. Sarai goes to Avram, who says, do what you want with her. So Sarai puts her back in her place. And then what happens? Hagar runs away. So the reason I want to harp on that a little bit is because Hagar could have just crumbled. Where's she going to go? She flees. What the hell kind of response is that? She flees. She's pregnant. Mm -hmm. She flees the protection of the patriarch by whom she's pregnant. Is she that mad at Sarai? For being put back in her place, or is she 14? She doesn't feel safe. And freaking out, she doesn't feel safe. Maybe, maybe she's hormonal and a teenager and has a tantrum and runs away. We don't know. We're not told. Are you describing last night again? I think I'm right back to last night. You're 18, you can go. This Rick Siegel says this was the beginning of family therapy. Uh, if only they had gotten family therapy, Rick, we well then we wouldn't have the rest of the story. So like, like, this family never got therapy, and so we have the rest of the book of Genesis, uh, which ends with the brothers selling their younger brother into slavery, right? Of course, right? Acting out all of those primal tensions within a family. But Hagar has enough agency that she leaves. She doesn't stick around for this treatment. All right. So then what happens? She runs away, and the ne- very next thing, 
Malach Adonai. She is found by a Malach of Yudhebate. She is found by a messenger of Yudhebate um, at a place called either a place called Ein Hamayim or an uh, the well in the wilderness or uh, uh, the well of water or she actually. She, or it actually is a spot of water in the Midbar, an Ain, a spring in the Midbar, right? Uh, the spring on the road to Shur. So the Malach finds her by a spring in the Midbar. Tell me what's, why? Why? That has to be there. Why? What's happening? Why do we care it's a spring? Park? Sarah says, let your God decide how this is going to work out. God, so Avram says, let, no, Sarai says, Avram. let God figure this out right. between us. Avram's next move is, Sarah, do whatever you want with Hagar. Avram says, do what you want. Hagar makes the next move, darts. God makes the next move. Hagar flees, so she makes the next move. God. God makes this move right. once Hagar flees. Right. So to give her water. It's water. so it seems that now God needs to get involved. Right. Right? So she invokes Sarai invokes Yudhebavhe. Avram says, You have agency, you deal with Hagar. Hagar expresses her own agency and takes off. And Mark is saying, which now requires God's agency to send a Malach. Why? So we're going to see why, but it has to be at an aim. It has to be at a spring. It has to be at a well or a spring, which in these stories is always a story about life. Always. And we see next time Hagar leaves, we're going to have the same thing. She's right. She's going to then see a well of water. So this is critical. This is not a detail. This is absolutely key to the story. The, the listener knows, oh, there's a spring. It's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. God intends for Ishmael to be there so that these two branches can set. All right. So we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> right? So the Malach says to Hagar, right? Malach and then verse eight. No. Yeah. By Yomer, I, I just put the, the the punctuation in the wrong place. By Yomer, now there should be a comma and quotations. The angel speaks and says, "I was reading by Yomer Hagar." Right. So by Yomer and says Hagar, comma Shifchat Sarai. Handmaiden of Sarai. Why is it you have come? And where are you going? Where have you come from? And where are you going? We've read before my classmate and colleague Rabbi Toba Spitzer's piece on this. Where have you come from and where are you going? Um, about the agency of Hagar. It is that use that employing of her agency that has her put in a position to be contacted by a malach of yudhe vavhe 
Hagar is the first person in Torah to encounter a Malach. It is fascinating to me that it is, and we've talked about this before, but I have to say it again. It is fascinating to me that it is a slave who is a foreigner who has a name that invokes her foreignness and her foreign status, who is now not under protection and is pregnant. You don't get more vulnerable than that in the ancient world. You are gum on the bottom of the universe's shoe at that point. She has every single lowest status possible. So this is the first person in Torah to encounter a malach. Okay. Man interrupted by God. So Barry is lifting up the fact that Hagar is going to answer only the first part of the Ma'af's question. Where have you come from? Notice the Ma'af reiterates her status as the handmaiden of Sarai. Don't be thinking, says the Ma'af, that your status has changed to Isha, to wife. Uh Uh-uh. That's not your role in this story. You are the handmaiden of Sarai. Let's be clear about that. But names her, calls her Hagar by name. Maid servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? Vatomer, and she says, Mipnei Sarai Gvirti Anochi From Sarai, my mistress, am I fleeing? Vayomerla, and he says to her, meaning the Malach says to her, oh, in case we're unclear, Malach Adonai, <laughs> the angel of Yudei Bafei, Shuvi El Gvirtech, go back. Return, shuv, teshuva, right? We know this root. Shuvi, command form. You, you, female, singular, return. Return to your mistress. Fahit ani tachat yadeha. And, and, and suffer underneath her hands. Go back and put up with whatever she's gonna do to you. Just deal with it. Deal with it. Suck it up. Put your big girl panties on and go back home. And whatever she's going to put you through, suck it up. Vayomerla malach Adonai, and the angel continues. Harba arbe et zarach, way multiplied will your seed be. Velo yisafer merav, you won't be able to count them for how rav, how abundant they are. All right, incredibly fascinating in that she is told she will have the same thing that Avram will have, not Sarai. Because what is Zerah? You're going to have Zerah. What is Zerah? Literally, sperm. Seed is euphemisms, or is, a, is euphemistic for sperm, right? This the, the patriarch's seed, right, means the seed that becomes the offspring. What's important is the seed, is the sperm. The, the womb is just a vessel. It, it is the male partner who was active in procreation. And, uh, what was I saying? Emmelinda's already laughing because she gets it. Hagar is promised seed. That is not a promise that makes sense to a female. So what the Malach is signaling to her 
is go back, suck it up, because you're, you don't need the status of wife, of Isha. You're going to have the status of Avram. You're going to be the patriarch of a huge people yourself. He's not the important person here. You are. So go back, suck it up. This is your path. This is how you're going to get there. What I will promise you is you will have the same status as Avra. Actually, she has more. She has more because she won't be controlled by a patriarch. And look how many more of her seed there are. Right. Judith Ubik points out that the children of Ishmael far outnumber the children of Yisrael. So she won. (laughs) In the end... Hagar won. Hagar wins. So I think this is also a very interesting story to be our foundational narrative of the other. The other is the one who encounters the Malach, not Sarai. And she's worried about being the same status as Sarai. And now, you know, whatever now Sarai's put her back down. Well, the Malach is saying, not only are you not going to have to worry about being first wife over second wife over whatever, you're going to jump the whole system and become like the page, like I'm from. It's just going to suck till, till you get there. It's going to suck. But isn't that, I don't know about y'all, but when I talk to certain kids in high school, you can look at them and know that their lives suck right now. And they'll tell you their lives suck. But you can look at them and know they're going to be amazing. And I tell them, just hang in there. Hang in there. This sucks and it's going to suck until you're in college. And it won't suck anymore. I promise. You can pick your friends. You can pick your classes. You'll, you'll have a choice you're going to become. Anyway, because because sometimes it sucks for the person who's going to be special. Because special also means misfit. Also means rebel sometimes. You almost have to earn it by suffering. And she's going to suffer just, I mean, she's going to suffer. Um, but I think everyone who becomes something that's not the norm, by definition experiences mm-hmm. suffering. Mm-hmm. Because you're not fitting in. Even if you become something super special, you're not fitting in. You don't fit the mold. And there has to be rubbing up against that in order to become, right, who who they're meant to be. But the angel doesn't stop talking. And the we're very we're told three times this is a a, a messenger of Yehovah. Hey, Barry says, tell me about it. <laughs> um, right. Uh, so. Yeah, the most special among us, and you could look back on their high school years, like, horrified, right, about about the reality of that. So a third time we're told this is a malach of yod Buffet, just in case we're not clear. In case we're not clear who the message is coming from, it's coming from yod Buffet. yod Buffet has chosen Hagar to be the matriarch of a great nation. The malach says, behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son. And you will call him Yishmael. For El, right? Yudevavhe, Shama, has heard. Has heard, has heeded. I like heeded better here. Your suffering. He shall be a wild ass of a man. Yadovacho, his hand, here it's translated against everyone. And everyone's hand against him. 
right? He shall dwell alongside all his echad, all his brothers. All right, so there's a lot of ink spent on is this a curse or a blessing or both? So we think wild ass of a man and think, okay, that is not something one wants to hear about what one is carrying in one's womb. But we've also been, you know, enculturated to value the yeshiva bukhar, the gentle love, you know, like, but in the world that Hagar lives in, and if Hagar's not going to ultimately have the protection of Avram, which we know she won't, then your kid better be able to walk down the block and take care of himself. So when they come for him, because he ain't got no daddy, he better be ready to put him up and take care of business, right? So I don't know that this is anything less than assurance that her kid, her son, is going to be okay. Because he's going to have to be a wild thing on some level to live in the wild of not the tent with the patriarch and the servants and the camels and the goods and the silks and the spices, right? He's going to have to He's going to be in the wild in a certain way, but he's also not going to be alone. He's going to live with his brothers, his kins people, um, and he's going to be engaged. So is he going to be a mercenary? Is he going to lead a mercenary army? Is he? We don't exactly know, um, but we know he succeeds. We know Yishmael becomes successful. Batikra shem yud hai dover aleha. Ata el roi, this remarkable passage where Hagar names Yudhe Vavhe. Talk about the ultimate agency. She didn't choose to be contacted by the Malach, but once she has all of these encounters, she turns back to the Malach and says, I name Yudhe Vavhe, and then there's this tangled Hebrew mess. Good luck, Barry. Go for it. A tangled Hebrew mess that doesn't make really any sense. You are the one who saw me, ki amra, right? By which she meant to say, hagam halom ra'iti acharei ro'i. I have not gone on seeing after God saw me. We have no clue. This is just a tangled grammatical mess. Um, so she, what we know is that for her, she understands this as an encounter with Yudhe that would be Avram's God, by the way. That sounds normal to us. Who would her God have been? Pharaoh. Ra. Isis. She's Egyptian. She would have been raised with Egyptian polytheism. She understands she has had an encounter with the Malach of yud heh and she names God something about I've gone on see haven't I gone on seeing after you saw me? We we don't know exactly what this means. She feels seen. We know that. And she names the place Be'er Lahairoi. Right? The the place where uh this business of seeing happens, this well. This um So this is a transformation of her from an Egyptian really to to an early Israelite. So it's interesting. Is that Yishmael? Is Yishmael, he becomes the head of those people 
that are not Israelites. Right. Israelites descend from Sarai having Jake having what's his chops? Isaac. Yishmael, they are not Israelite, but they are cousins to the Israelites. And we still are. So Hagar understands that it's Yudhe who has been in communication with her, but it doesn't appear she becomes Yahwist. Right. Don't know. Maybe she is in her own way. Don't know. But what we know is the Ishmaelites become their own kindred people to the Israelites. Possibly this, you know, this has become now a story of how this place, Be'er Wahiroi, got its name. This is an etiological story, how the elephant got its trunk. We see a lot of these. We know that. For me, though, this wasn't made up out of whole cloth. This comes from some kind of a tradition of the matriarch Sarai. Having, right, some kind of situation. And if we go back to the whole priestess notion, right, it would have been normative, and we have lots of legal documentation from this region that says, if you have a maidservant and you're using her in order to have your heir, if you decide, priestess, that that's not going to be your heir, that you have issue of your own body, and that, and you now choose that child to be your heir, you must free the slave and her child. We have documentation of that legal instruction in the ancient Mesopotamian record. So she becomes the matriarch. So possibly what we have here is a remnant story of such a situation and Sarai and Hagar part as friends. It turns out I have my own son and I now choose because it it takes a while. Even when she has Isaac, it takes a while before she says, I pick him over Ishmael. Until she throws them out, in our story she throws them out, until that moment, Ishmael is the heir. He's the oldest. So he stays the heir until Isaac is tied to the altar. So that's a long time. So then if she decides, okay, Isaac is the one who's going to be my heir, going back to a Mesopotamian origin story, then her obligation is to free Hagar and Ishmael. She can't have it both ways. You can't get raised to the mother of the heir and then demoted to slave forever. So even though she's demoted here, ultimately, even in this story, she's free and she becomes a measure of her own Son of his people, of her people, of the Ishmaelites. Okay, Rachel, you can stop sharing. So someone asked earlier, why is Sarai mad at Avram? I've had it with Avram this year. Like, I feel like you lied to Pharaoh and said she was your sister because you wanted to save your own tuchus. So she gets taken into Pharaoh's house. Then they get called on the carpet for it. She could have been killed right then. Right, as a result of that whole chicanery, um, he has no problem like doing that. And then he and he has no problem listening to God saying lech lecha, leave everything. Does Sarai hear that call? We don't know. But Avram goes, oh, so this invisible voice is telling me I should leave our homeland and everything we have, the cars, the beautiful pool and pa- 
patio furniture, leave it all, and go where? To New Jersey? Where is he told to go? Oh, sorry. Where is he told to go? To the place where I will show you, says the invisible voice. Okay, okay. Can we imagine Sarai being really down with that? So he follows that, doesn't tell the truth about their marriage and gets her taken twice, twice, and and then like doesn't want to deal with it when there's stuff going on in the women's tent. La 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 you deal with that, you deal with it, honey. Okay, she deals with it, right? Then that's gonna have him not able to keep his eldest with him, Ishmael. And then this kid that he's been waiting for with Sarai, the invisible voice is going to say what to him? Take the Na'ar and offer him as a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And Avram goes, okay. (laughs) I'm just, I just, I'm really fed up with Avram right now. And so I'm, and I was like really, really fed up when I was studying this text and I was having trouble getting over it. And then I was mad at the patriarchal narrator who needs to demote Sarai and Hagar and make it about jealousy and wife infighting and competition because that's all we women are anyway, competitors. And, you know, there's a, a, a article I was reading called the, um, the heel marks on her face talking about how women step all over each other. Um, so thank you, Emelinda. Exactly. That's exactly my point. Um, right. That women step all over each other. I'm not saying it's not true. I know it is, but it's, but what to Emelinda's point, it's a boy storyteller. This is a male perspective. And so like, I was just really upset with that when I got th- this morning, you see the Malach at work. The person who directs our Hartman program said, I just thought y'all might like this little piece by Yehuda Kurtzer on Avram. And I'm like, ooh, I'm not, I'm not talking to Avram so much right now. But then I was like, ooh, the Malach brings us what we need when we need it. So Rachel, would you put up that document, please? And I know we're just about out of time, so I'm not going to do a lot of it. Um, if you'll drop down to the paragraph that says, or maybe, there you go. And can you make it bigger? Control plus, maybe, or maybe not. Ooh, there you go. Love that. Okay. Or maybe Avram is exactly what we see. This is Yehuda Kurtzer talking, which is to say a little confused. The story of Abraham in the Torah is one of a person with the voice of God thundering in his ear a person desperate to do right by God and to inaugurate the mission of building a kingdom of heaven on earth in the divine image, no blind obedient like Noah, but rather a person who understands he has agency in a society that can be just and right, and that that justice and righteousness has to take place in society rather than in isolation. Avraham also has his own instincts thundering in the other ear which sometimes correlate to what God wants him to do and sometimes don't. Abraham is a commanded thinker. And as the first such human in our history, he is sometimes confused as to how exactly he is meant to act. And Abraham then makes mistakes. 
He needs gentle prodding from God and from Sarah and others about those mistakes. Like any leader, he sometimes mixes up which noise around him is good direction and which is just noise. He screws up because he's figuring it out and because he has no template from which to work and because he knows that a moral person is shaped in relationship to those around him, at times taking direction, at times discerning obligation, at times messing up and hoping to make amends. We need not reconcile the Avrahams. The messiness is a feature, not a bug. So I kind of needed, <laughs> I kind of needed that uh, this morning, but I want to go on just a little bit because of the other conversations we've been having. George Walcon, I, you better be on here. Um, if humans are created in the image of God, but even the best humans are imperfect, well, I'm not going to say what follows about God, but I will say that we become more blessed and more fortunate when the first ancestors after whom we are meant to model our religious selves are, it seems, as confused as we are. I love confused Avraham. Could there be a better template for our time when so many of us walk around with a sense of certainty about justice and righteousness, about the burning buildings around us, but not always the certainty of knowing what we're supposed to do about it? Imagine an Abraham who helps us listen for the callings that should guide us towards radical risk to leave behind the known in search of the possible, but who also helps us listen for the goodness of our instincts that can be found in our hearts and most of all. An Abraham who tries, really tries, to toggle between the two and who sometimes, all caps, screws it up. Confused Abraham is all of us, but maybe the best version of all of us. Definitely the first one of us. And look, maybe some of the stakes of his are good and bad decisions were bigger than ours. I don't know what that's about. But it is a blessing for us to read his story as the first great human story of our Torah, our lives, and the length of our days. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.